Welcome to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to The Female Red Zone. This is Mary Beth Kazmeski. Today I'm interviewing Kate Benson. Kate is the president and CEO of the Chicago Network, and she received her AB in economics from the University of Chicago and her law degree from Loyola University of Chicago School of Law. Interestingly, she is also a director of the Grammy award-winning ensemble, Eighth Blackbird. Uh, She is a member of the Commercial Club, the Economic Club, the Chicago Club, International Women's Forum, Executives Club, Women's Board of University of Chicago. Uh, She's the past chair, very involved in her community and very involved in the support of women. So I'm really excited to have with us today, Kate Benson. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. I'm thrilled to do this. Well, it is my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about the Chicago Network. What is the Chicago Network? Who's in the Chicago Network? And just give a little overview of that if you could. Delighted to. So the Chicago Network was founded in 1979 um, by a group of senior women, and they wanted to form a group for other senior professional women in Chicago. They didn't know how to find them, so they hired a researcher, and they invited over 100 women to the Metropolitan Club for a drink and to talk about whether they should form an organization, and the answer was obviously yes. And so the network started with more than 100 members. So we have four um, main purposes. First and foremost, we connect uh, Chicago's senior, impactful professional women so they can be helpful to each other um, professionally and personally. We also measure with Deloitte, our Deloitte, our data gathering partner, how women are doing in the top 50 public companies in Chicago because we figure that's a good proxy for how women are doing in business in general. And we take a look at whether they're in the C-suite, whether they're on the board of directors, and whether they're top earners because that needle is not moving a whole lot. Uh, We also help prepare our members for corporate board service. And then over the past five or six years during my tenure, we've really started to focus on harnessing the power and talent of our members to pay it forward and help cultivate the next generation of women leaders. And we have two initiatives to do that. One is for first-generation college students, our future leaders. And it's really all about career exposure and leveling the playing field so that these young women understand the variety of career options available. And the other is a leadership conference that we hold every April for our members and the high potentials in their network. Excellent. Well, so the obvious question from... Uh, for me is, so how are women doing in Chicago? Well, I'd say there has been measured progress, but we have a long way to go. The year to parity, um, the year of parity, when we have just as many men as women in the C-suite and on the board of directors is 2079. 2079. As I I tell tell young women, I gave a talk at the University of Chicago, I said, you'll be old and I'll be dead. So, um, we'll talk a little bit about that. So, there's the, so the numbers are not good. The numbers have been moving, but they've been moving slightly. But the numbers are not good. And obviously, your organization is you know is there to to help with this. But what are some of what are some of the reasons in the back the backstory as to why this continues not to really? You you said you know we're not really moving the needle. Why? Well, I think, you know, there are going to be a couple of drivers for change, and that's really how I like to take a look at it. And I think first and foremost, it's going to be CEOs with leadership and vision who hold their management teams accountable for increasing diversity and inclusion and making sure that women 
are both advanced up the track and have an environment to work in where they don't want to step off. Um, I think another thing that's going to drive change is institutional investors, and we're starting to see the SEC call for, um, you know, disclosing the diversity of the board, and you know, groups like Calpers are also putting pressure on companies to increase the diversity on their boards. Well, one of the things about increased diversity, and and I know that you know every major corporation has just about um, has a an initiative for diversity and, and certainly, um, you know, with, with diversity goes inclusion, but, you know, if we've got this, if we've got all these initiatives for diversity and if every major corporation has some kind of a, a, of an initiative and nobody likes quotas, like if you talk to somebody about quotas, they're like, well, that's not right. Cause that's not fair. How do we increase the diversity and improve the diversity rather if, um, you know, we're, we're not talking about just hire a woman cause she's a woman, um, you know, just vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman, but we've got all of these skills and all of this somehow is lost in the, in the, um, in the mix is that companies are actually more profitable when they've got women in an executive positions. I mean, there's been a lot of studies and one just recently that I saw that, that suggests that, um, not just on the board, but in executive positions, the profits go up. So, but there's something else still going on because every firm has an initiative. It's not the initiative. It's something else that's happening. Well, I think the initiative has to have teeth. And so the example that I really like to point to is Miles White at Abbott. His initiative has teeth. He holds his managers accountable. He hits their bonuses if they don't meet their targets. So I don't know that it's quotas so much as really thinking broadly and inclusively about who's going to be advanced and promoted. Yeah, I like that inclusively. It's about being inclusive as opposed to looking at things the way we've always looked at them. And so you could say maybe it's a cultural thing or something. But, you know, if if we've got the idea that we want to include all of the good people that we possibly can or include the best people in our in our company, that we have to look beyond what's obvious. And I, I think maybe that's more about looking outside of the bounds of what we've always had and and being able to to establish that but i think part of that is just culturally getting getting to change some of those things internally about the way that people think i mean do you i know there's lots of you know train inclusion training and diversity training and i'm a big fan of those things have you you know heard about some of those things working in the chicago area in large corporations and you mentioned miles white at abbott um that's a great example uh, because he's made he's it's actually happening there but in terms of training and and more cultural shifts have you seen that as well? You know, the where I really see it um, primarily is the professional services firms. And that is not to say it's not happening elsewhere. Um, but they really, I, you know, you look at the Deloitte's and you look at the E&Ys and the KPMG's and the PWC's, they're really out in front because they recognize that, you know, they're particularly focused on having women not step off and making sure that the workplace is inclusive and meets them where they are. There's going to be a huge war for talent if there's not already. Millennials look at the workforce very differently, and if these firms are going to thrive, they have to win the war on talent, and that means they're going to have to be more inclusive in retention and promotion. Yes. The the idea of flexibility in the workplace I just talked with a woman who, you know, didn't take a CEO position because she felt like it was going, she'd have to work 24 seven and she wasn't willing to necessarily do that. And you know, so my question is, well, 
you know, it, but not all CEO positions are like that. And not all corporate executive positions are like that. But do you see change in, in some of the flexibility issues where we need to have um, a full life as well as just, you know, the, the position and the big position and the important position? Well, I think employees are going to demand it. But on the other hand, you know, as, as my friend Linda Meyer says, she's a partner at Kirkland and Ellison. She's on the International Management Committee. You have to really want it. And if you really want to be a CEO, it's going to be a demanding position. But does it need to be 24-7? I don't know, but I suspect that's not quite the right answer. <laughs> I think it really has to do with, you know, how you decide to work and how you're going to integrate all the facets of your life. I view sort of work and life as a continuum. And there are times during the workday where I'm doing something personal and there are times on the weekend when I'm working. But it all gets done and it all flows together. And I find that's a much more comfortable way to think and work. And it's, it's incredibly productive and it also brings you joy because you're getting things done. But it also requires decision making which is sometimes brutal. And so that means that you might not always be at all the games and you might not be the mom who's baking the cookies um, but you're going to do the things that you think are important. It's also important for couples to really talk about um, both careers and what are the parameters for when someone can take a promotion and do some of these other things. And I think, you know, successful careers reflect um, family values where both partners are actively engaged in thinking about careers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. In your position, how did you how did you get to be the president and CEO of the Chicago Network? What was your path kind of to get to where you're at today? Well, it's an interesting path, as as with many uh, career paths for women, it is not linear. Um, the short and sweet of how I got this job is that I'm a great networker, and I have friends who are recruiters, and I made it a point even when I was uh, you know a law firm partner to always take their calls, to sit down, have a glass of wine a couple times a year, and just talk. And it was because I had a relationship with the recruiter who had the network search that she came and sought me out. Um, longer term, you know, I was uh, a partner at a large law firm in Chicago, and while I love that and really still have many close friends uh, in the partnership, I realized that I didn't want to be on the outside. I didn't want to be the service provider. I wanted to be on the inside of an organization, you know, having an effect on policy and direction and strategy. And I was never going to get that being the outside lawyer. And thus began the journey of, you know, leaving the law giving up my clients and pursuing something that was quite different. Wow. I mean, I guess you could consider it maybe a risk to leave the law firm and the clients and all of that. But talk about, did it feel risky to you at the time when you did it? It did. In fact, I probably wouldn't do it the same way now. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, I kind of wrestled with this for, you know, 18 months and had a lot of conversations with my husband about this. But leaving the security of a big firm partner job without a clear plan is probably not what I would recommend to anyone. <laughs> I just knew that I would end up doing something meaningful, something I would love. And I feel very nimble now, much more nimble than when I was at the law firm. I knew that I would probably end up in the nonprofit field, but I wasn't sure what that meant when I left. Mm -hmm. I probably today would like hire someone to help me like work through all those things, and then I'd step off. But that's frankly not how I did it. 
<laughs> well, we can always look back and go, well, there, there could have been a smoother path to this, but um, it's just never the way, it's just never the way it is. I mean, people that have a bunch of smooth paths, um, sometimes they're not telling the whole story. <laughs> so, Well, I think they're not telling the whole story. And I think one of the, the real impetuses for leadership and growth is leaning into discomfort and kind of stepping off without knowing what was next was uncomfortable. But that's yeah. where growth comes. Absolutely. So what would you say has been your biggest success to date uh, in terms of the your career and, and some of the things that you've been able to do? Well, I'm really I'm proud of really two things at the network. One is I've grown the top line um, by about 500,000, which is not a lot in the corporate world. Uh, but considering that our total budget is $1.2 million and we do a lot with that, I'm very proud of that because it's given us the resources to do a lot of strategic initiatives such as the ones I've described already. I'm also really proud of moving the organization to become more external. Um, when I joined the network, there really was not the thought of outreach to cultivate the next generation. And as I did engagement visits with our members, particularly our members of color, they said, you know, there has to be more. We have to figure out a way to give back. And that really started the, the journey of thinking about how we do that with our resources in a way that is true to our members and what we can do and do very well. So I'm really proud of the fact that we're, we're extremely external now. And I love that outreach to the to the next generation piece because I, I work a lot in financial services and I do a lot of consulting there and there's a, a big lack of, of females in the financial services industry. And when we look at that, we say, well, well, why is that? Well, when you're growing up, you're not thinking when you're a kid and you're growing up, you're not thinking, well, what I want to be is a financial advisor because you don't necessarily have a bunch of um, women in your life that are maybe financial advisors. You know, you've got maybe an accountant and you have maybe a lawyer and you have maybe a nurse and, and other things like that, but you're not necessarily thinking about some of these careers or science careers and the whole STEM effort and, and all of that. And so I love this female um, or this, you know, sort of youth outreach. Talk a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and is there a way that people can get and, and help and become involved in this um, outreach to cultivate the next generation? Sure, I'm delighted to talk about that. So one of the things we're doing for STEM is we have four astrophysicists in the network and we're doing a program on space next week. And so we've really um, reached out to the Girl Scouts and After School Matters, um, Junior Achievement, just to make sure that our room is full of young women who have an interest in STEM. If we, if we can come away from that evening with sparking one or two women to then go on to university and, and get their PhDs, I feel like we will have had a tremendous success when we look back at this in 10 years. For our Future Leaders Program, we partner with three schools that are, I think, less well-resourced um, than some of the other universities in the area because we really want to make sure that these young women um, have the opportunity to know what's out there. They did not grow up with accountants or doctors or lawyers uh, as family members or in their neighborhood. And they just simply don't know what's out there. So um, this spring, for example, the, they'll go to Opportunity International and they'll learn what it takes to run an organization like that or they're going to go to Ulta. The CEO, Mary Dillon, is a graduate of the University of Illinois at Chicago. In fact, when we were designing this program, she said, Kate, make sure that you're dealing with UIC, not the U of Cs of the world. And we really, really took that to heart. 
And so the young women from, from UIC will actually spend time with a very successful alum. Yeah, see, that's wonderful because, I, and it goes to the inclusion piece too that you talked about. You know, it's including kind of everybody, not the most obvious choices, but everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that's wonderful. Now, one of the things that I read recently was about you know students who are in an M- MBA program, and so there's females and males. They get out, they've got goals. There's a few more females than males actually in the MBA programs. They get out. They the the, the income is about the same when they get out. Um, in the MBA program, males are a little bit higher, but um, they look at the study three years after um, someone has gotten out and there's there starts to become an income uh, change. There's a big income gap, well, a small income gap that turns to be a large income gap uh, as the time moves on. So what happens between us females going to college, having big goals and doing, um, you know, wanting to do exactly what we want to do. And then somehow there's a shift, but it's not a shift just with me or with you. It's a, it's a, it's a shift across the board because when they look at these numbers over and over again, it's the same sort of thing that's happening. And we may have already talked about it, but what do you think is the, is the issue not just with having less females in corporate executive positions, but just about the income differences and and the pay differences? Well, I think it's two things that sort of unfortunately feed on each other. I think there is a confidence gap. Julie Kaufman at Bain has done a marvelous piece of research on confidence. When men and women start out at their you know first job, they are equally confident, but then the female confidence erodes over time. And that may be because, you know, the men are taking the other guys golfing and they're giving the attaboys and the assignments are going to men. Um, and part of it is just unconscious bias. Um, part of it may be just leaning into the comfort zone as opposed to discomfort. Um, and then there's another study that really talks about aspirations of female MBAs, and they don't aspire as high. And you know that may be because they see what's going on in companies, they see women leaving, and they don't see a large number of women rising to the top. So I think all of that feeds on each other. And you know I know Bain is working very hard um, to make sure that you know they're dealing with these unconscious biases and making sure that they're you know putting the foundation in place so women can advance but i don't think there's an easy answer to this no i don't i don't think so either there obviously isn't or all the smart people um that are committed to this cause of changing this would would have already figured it out it's it's complex but you mentioned confidence and there's a book that i absolutely love i got it from a um from an executive at um, at Walmart, and sh- it's called the Confidence Code, and it's by Katie Kay and Claire Shipman, I believe. And mm. um, she gave this book. This uh, female HR uh, exec at Walmart gave this book to all the people that worked for her because she felt like there's we have to understand because it's really about the Confidence Code is really about females and understanding kind of what happens and how we feel and the, and the voices that we have going on so that we can work better together. It's like, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus kind of a thing, except it's relating to the specific idea of confidence. And so, you know, I think that that, that certainly is part of it. And, and I think, you know, when you ask a woman who's very strong and strong-willed and, you know, um, about the confidence when they're getting their MBA program, they're probably, no, I have, I have tons of confidence. Are you kidding me? I'm smarter than half these guys in my class. I mean, everything is great. And then something changes. And um, and I, I believe it has something to do with confidence. I believe that's true. But after I read the book, I, you know, 
I, I really found a lot more of the stories that are behind some of that shift in confidence or the difference that we have uh, with confidence between males and females. Very interesting. Well, I'm going to put that on my list. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what are some other organizations that you're a member of that, you know, besides the Chicago Network, because in the Chicago Network, you have to be um, an executive already, right? Unless you're in one of the um, the future leaders group or something, but you've got to already be an executive to be in the uh, Chicago Network. So what are some other organizations you're very well connected that, that women should think about maybe getting involved in as they are um, themselves an up-and-comer and hoping to get into those corporate positions? That is a great question. I think for real up-and-comers, a place where they can really network and give back is the Step Up Women's Network. Um, it's an extraordinary organization all about leadership development, both for the members who belong and the young women in high school that they help get into their college careers. So that one was really high on my list. Another is the Executives Club of Chicago. Um, it's a great place to meet other um, young leaders uh, and also to hear from ex some extraordinary speakers. In fact, we have partnered with the Executives Club to do a mentorship program uh, for young professional women. Um, so our members uh, step up and, and mentor these young women, and I'm a mentor, and we are having the time of our life. Well, that is wonderful. That's awesome. Now, what about your leadership conference? Is that something that people can attend, um, or are you, you in the network in order to attend that? You have to be invited by someone in the network to attend it, um, and we encourage our members to think about the high potentials both in their companies and in their networks more broadly. So I would say if someone knows someone in the network, they should definitely you know, reach out and see whether there's a fit for the conference. Now, I must say this year our luncheon is sold out, so you might be able to get to the conference, but you can't come to our luncheon, unfortunately, because we, uh, we have no more room in the ballroom. Well, maybe you have to have a bigger venue next time, right? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting um, because we really we think hard about the quality of the experience, and simply a bigger ballroom with more people doesn't necessarily give us the atmosphere. I mean, we're going to have sixteen hundred mm. people, so it's not like it's a small event, right? Uh, no, it's not. People. <laughs> No, networking is key. We have a networking reception beforehand um, so people can, you know, just for about 45 minutes um, meet others. And then we want people to table hop a little bit during the luncheon. So the fuller the ballroom is, the more difficult it is to table hop. So um, right now we're, we're pretty content with 1,600 people. That is a lot of people. So how can people find out more about the Chicago Network and more about you? Um, you can go to our website, www.thechicagonetwork.org. Um, you can see descriptions of all we do. We became a 501c3 this last year, so we're really keen on making sure we've got a lot of educational content. Um, our Women on Boards programs are going to be put up there, our, our speakers at our luncheons, uh, leadership talks by our members. We're really out to provide content to anyone who, who seeks it. Well, that is wonderful. And are there um, other sort of sister organizations maybe in other cities or is the Chicago Network mm -hmm. just a standalone? Well, we are a standalone, um, but there are organizations in many cities. Um, a lot of them are devoted to getting women on boards. Uh, some of them are invitation only like the network and some of them are not. I would say our closest organization uh, in terms of caliber of members and what we do is the New York Forum of the International Women's Forum. Ah, okay. 
Well, wonderful. Well, Kate, this has been very informative and I've enjoyed very much the conversation. I've learned a few things here, which I really appreciate. And I know that our listeners will too. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, Mary Beth, thank you. This has been absolutely terrific and I appreciate being asked. Well, you are welcome. And from the Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kosmeski. Thanks for listening to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.